Is there anyone who does not appreciate and admire Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway? I've read at least four books about him and two of those titles I've read more than once. So when I saw a new book coming out, not on Buffett, but about every purchase they've made over the years, I was more than intrigued. In fact, I bought the book immediately, uh, which comes out April 13, 2021. The author is Adam Mead. And the name of the book is The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our conversation with Adam is coming up next. Again, our guest is Adam Mead, the author of the book, The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. The first question I had for Adam was, why the love affair with Warren Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger? Why? <laughs> sure. No, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, if, if you use use Charlie's uh, mental model framework to sort of help us think about that, you know, um, I, I think, you know, just broadly speaking, they're, they're, they're great. And I'll, I'll speak, you know, the same about both of them. They're just great human beings and, you know, amplified by all these other things, right? Um, you know, we, we look up to people, uh, we have this, you know, the wealth effect, if you will, uh, you know, they've done well over time. They're an authority figure. Um, you know, so, so that the money doesn't, the money doesn't hurt, of course. And, and then you have the, the whole social proof thing. Uh, everybody's, you know, reconfirming, uh, what we know. And so it's just, um, you know, they've, they've deserved their, their reverence. And, you know, I, I don't would expect that would only continue to grow as the years go on. But uh, I guess that would be my short answer on that one. This could come across as a very harsh, intense 60 minutes question, but another Buffett book, of course, I'm smiling as I asked you this, another Buffett book, but Adam, what makes your book different? Well, that's, uh, that's another great question because, and, and actually it's the first question you, you should, anyone will probably ask, right? Um, it, the short answer is it's the book I never found. So uh, my friend, Chris, Bloomstrand, who wrote the the foreword, he actually went and found that there are over 200 titles on Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren, Charlie, uh, in, in some format. And so, you know, why, why another book on the crowded bookshelf? Well, I guess among the, the, you know, huge volume uh, of books that currently exist, there's none that go, go A to Z chronologically and really focus on the numbers. Um, and, and so, you know, what I wanted to do was give, give the new shareholder something to, to get up to speed, you know, and really, you know, I, I, I've, I've been studying Berkshire for call it, you know, 15, 20 years. Uh, others have lived through its history in real time. And so it, as time goes on, you know, you, you kind of, you lose that ability to, to follow the company in real time. And so, uh, I, I hope to give the new shareholder something some, a way to just sort of work forward in time year by year, and then also provide uh, existing shareholders with, you know, whether it's uh, just a, it's a fresh look. I mean, I, I think there's some, some new things that I've kind of uncovered or highlighted and, uh, and even serve as a reference book as well. You know, it's just the, the way it's laid out chronologically, it's very logical and uh, easy to reference certain things. Um, and so I, I've, I've crammed, uh, you know, well over 10,000 pages of material uh, over, you know, like we were talking before, over five years 
uh, into you know roughly 800 pages. So it's um, it's dense, but it's you know it, it flows forward and it's um, you, you know I, I would just just to use one example. So you know Buffett would talk about in his letter, you know okay the the MSR businesses uh, had a 17% return on tangible equity. Well, well, I would always sit there and say, well, geez, where did he get this number? And so, you know, I just, I just sort of used my own curiosity and just wrote it for myself. Never expect, you know, I, I like, if, I'd be happy if I sell a hundred copies uh, to some of the diehards. Um, but, but that's kind of the feel of it. Uh, very numbers heavy, of course. What I'm sensing is, and I don't have the title uh, in front of me, but Robert Hagstrom is written, in my opinion, one of the best books where he does get into some of the numbers but only on a few deals, but also just in a few pages. And I'm gathering that we're going to have a lot of numbers across a lot of deals. Is that correct? And again, I apologize if I haven't asked you to look at Hagstrom's book. Yeah, well, broader broader and deeper. Um, yeah, so the, the Warren Buffett Way, uh, I think was his first book. And that, That's that was, I, I've literally read or listened to that book 10 times. I mean, it really, it really is a gem. And, um, so, you know, I, I've taken, I, I think in that book, he talks about, you know, Coca-Cola, for example, and kind of walks through some of the math. Exactly. And so, you know, I've done that with, with Berkshire, every major acquisition that has a, has the financials available and, you know, any, any information that's out there that I could look at, um, you know, without, it was tempting, you know, there were so many rabbit holes to want to go down, throughout the history. Um, but I've captured, you know, what I think is, uh, the key variables to each acquisition and look at, you know, the, you know, say five year history leading up to, uh, Berkshire's purchase, what they're going in return is, and, and kind of just look at it that way, uh, on an enterprise basis to give it consistency over time. So, uh, you know, I, I hope people, you know, some people might not uh, totally agree with the way I've approached it, but I think it's, it's consistent and, uh, you know, um, all the numbers, you know, the numbers are there without, without going too crazy into each one. Have Warren or Charlie gone through the book yet? So, uh, uh, Harriman house printed up three copies for me of the, the print. Uh, so I could, I could see it, feel it, you know, uh, we had made some decisions on, uh, on paper and and text and uh, the, there's a whole nother talk I could do on just um, just the publishing process. But they they put they printed up three copies, uh, one for me to do some of the proofreading and uh, one went to to Warren and one went to Charlie. So uh, I have heard back from Warren. Uh, he's given me given me some praise. I, I actually have his letter framed uh, up behind me here. Uh, haven't heard from Charlie, but we'll we'll see. Um, I, I'm sure he has, he, he has quite a. a bookshelf to go through. I, from what I understand, people send him books all the time. So I don't know if he's gotten to mine yet, but <laughs> you've gotten to meet him, haven't you? Yeah. So, um, I have met, I've met both men. Um, I first met Warren. So my first year out to Omaha was 2012. And I mean, it's just such a wonderful time out there. I mean, you just, you're, you're literally around 40,000 friends. And so I, I hear that, you know, and you have to do all the, all the stuff, right? So uh, I, I went to Borsheim's for, you know, at that time, Warren was going around. He was, he was crazy. Warren, the salesman that would go around and, and sell, you know, this jewelry to, uh, 
the shareholders for, you know, probably cost or something. And it, it was fun. And so I had heard, I was talking to someone um, uh, in Borsheim's and they said, well, just stand right here. They're going to cordon this area off and, uh, and you'll be basically locked in. And so I did that and Warren was coming around. He was selling, you know, his jewelry and I just stuck out my hand and, and he shook it, um, you know, made, made my day. Uh, <laughs> And then in 2016, I met Charlie at the Daily Journal uh, shareholder meeting, which was much, much more intimate. I mean, I could walk, walk right up and, you know, there was sort of this little after meeting and people were, were uh, asking him some other questions. And, you know, I said, hey, Charlie, can I, can I shake your hand? And, uh, you know, so sure enough, uh, you know, those, those are some fond memories I have of, of those two. So this book, it's, it's not an autobiography. It's not a biography. It's focusing on the deals, as you said, from A to Z, but we do like an origin story. Is there anything in Warren's origin story that does wind up in the book, maybe in some of those first few deals? Is, is there anything that you see or learn about Warren that's you found fascinating uh, near the very beginning? Yeah. So, and, and just to s- sort of um, a little, a little history on, on kind of how the book got going you know, I've been working on this for, for five years now. And at the beginning, it was like, here's, here's kind of what I want to do. And um, uh, so I, I wrote, I said, well, I'm going to start at 1965. You know, that, that's when he got there. And I said, well, I'm going to look back 10 years. And so when I sent Warren the first chapter, he actually, you know, to my surprise, wrote back and said, you know, glad you're writing this. Um, you know, why don't you go back a little further and take a look at World War, uh, the World War II era when, you know, these... The, the, the companies had basically began to decline, had this nice spike in profitability because uh, of various factors during World War II. And, um, and so I said, well, I'm just going to go all the way back. You know, if I'm going this far, I'm just going to go all the way back. So, so the book starts in uh, literally the, you know, how textiles came from England to the United States. They got established in New England, Massachusetts uh, area where there's some strong rivers to provide the power and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about that. Um, but I guess, so, so the book does not delve into, you know, there was a book written about the the partnership days. I don't, I don't go deep into that. I don't go deep into, you know, Warren's personal life, although it, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit from, from his early days, you know, uh, selling Cokes or delivering newspapers or the pinball machines. He, he really pushed Berkshire forward in, in many ways throughout the years. And uh, I think that was a, a big part uh, or a part of Berkshire's success over time. So, you know, his, his origin has sort of, um, I guess there, there was nothing really new about his, his origin story, if, if you will. But uh, his early life is definitely evident in, uh, in Berkshire's history. One thing I found or have found fascinating about reading him is Benjamin Graham will always come up. So any Buffett uh, student or acolyte is going to know that, you know, Benjamin Graham is probably the person who had the biggest impact uh, on him and his, his investment philosophies. Yeah. And, and just, you know, uh, I was thinking as well, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's been a learning machine over time, right? I mean, he's just continually, uh, you know, the, the numbers and the companies get bigger and bigger, but you know, he's, he's still, you know, Warren selling newspapers and, you know, probably have, have his handwritten spreadsheet of how many papers he's delivering and, you know, when he's going to become a millionaire. I mean, he really, 
to him, it just, and, and that's, you know, the, this arc that I saw, you know, throughout time, uh, you know, into the details, but then looking at the, the big picture was, you know, it's Warren just, just rinse and repeat, right? Um, but, but it really is interesting. You know, another thing I just thought of, Mark, was uh, Buffett talks about the, the Pritzker family. Uh, it, it just, it's interesting how these names in history kind of just kept coming up over time. I forget the exact uh, numbers and, and details, but when they bought Fruit of the Loom, for example, was owned by the, the Union Carbide Company, and, and that was Jay Pritzker. And so Buffett had, I think that was his, uh, the, the cocoa bean deal in the early days. That, that was the same one that was involved. Well, it was, it, Marmon was the Pritzker family, but then uh, the, the Union Union Carbide deal was Fruit of the Loom. And so it's like these these names, and, and, and Mickey Newman helped him out with the, the Fruit of the Loom acquisition. So these names just kind of keep coming up, and it's it's just interesting how big the world is, but yet how small the business world r- really is. You know, these players just uh, uh, continuing to operate over time. Your book, we could spend hours, right? <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to just pull out some big, big points, key points, some big ideas. So as you already said, the structure of your book is really, you said from A to Z. So I'm assuming you go back in the timeline, his first deal all the way to maybe one of his last deals. Is, is that, again, is that the structure of the book? Again, it's hard to, it's hard to write something about Buffett and it's not like, you know, hey, I, I studied Buffett and everybody missed this one thing over the last 50 years. Here's the secret. Um, uh, but I just wanted to take a, a, an approach that, that hadn't been taken. And, um, you know, again, I, I weave in Warren's, you know, quotes from his, his chairman's letters. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to outdo Buffett. I let him speak when it makes sense. And, you know, he often has, uh, you know, that piercing analysis that we all love. So, uh, you know, that's uh, Nebraska Furniture Park was 1983. Uh, and so, you know, that year is, uh, for example, within the 1975 to 1984 decade. And so, so my decades are, you know, from his origin at Berkshire on. And then within that, so each chapter has uh, a summary, I guess you could say, of you know a snapshot, beginning, end, major capital allocation decisions, and any kind of noteworthy events, and then uh, some key economic data just to keep in mind as you're reading the chapter, uh, and then a short, you know, maybe one-page introduction, and then so from there, uh, literally each year, so each uh, they they get longer as as the years go on, but say seven, eight to 10, 12 pages on every year. So, so I'm literally saying, okay, here, here's what Berkshire did in 1983. Um, they had all these other, you know, I think they called them the manufacturing, uh, publishing and retailing businesses at that time. And so uh, as it's relevant to fit into the book, I say, okay, you know, on, on Warren's birthday in 1983, August 30th, you, you know, he, he bought, brought Nebraska Furniture Mart. And then you know, go, go into the deal and say, okay, uh, you know, he's provided us uh, information, you know, whether it's that letter that year or, you know, looking forward and saying, oh, well, geez, you know, I was listening to the annual meeting in, you know, 2008 and he said this about it. And so I've tried to piece all of that information together and say, okay, you know, he said, and that's a great example, Mark, because uh, the numbers weren't public at that time, it wasn't a public company before it joined Berkshire. And so I had to go by the letter that was provided of the, the purchase. So in one of the annual 
reports, he provided the, the actual sales contract, which was only about a page and a half, as well as some of his comments. So I say, okay, the purchase price was $60 million. Uh, he said it was a, about $100 million in revenues, 7% pre-tax. Okay, that equals... So I, I've tried to piece together all of these details and, you know, that, and I'm glad you used that example too, because I, I ran into, I wouldn't say problem, but it was just interesting that Nebraska Furniture Mart, for example, so he said, okay, we paid 60 million for 90%. And then you look at the, the summary earnings table, which I've, I've reproduced over the decade at the beginning of the chapter. And you, you look at the numbers and it has the company level numbers and then it has Berkshire share. And you do the math and it comes out to 80%. I said, well, what's going on here? He just said that they bought 90% of it. And so, you know, digging around, sleuthing around, doing my research and, and finding, okay, well, no, they, it, was, it was 90%, but then Berkshire, they, they gave them a 10% option, which went to, to, to Louis, uh, Louis Blumpkin. And so it's like, okay, well, that's why those numbers look like that. And so there's been a, there was a number of these different, uh, you know, puzzles that I had to unpack, which was, you know, just, it was, you know, obviously sometimes it was, it was frustrating to try to find it, but it was, it was like a puzzle. I mean, it really was like a puzzle unpacking this and, and learning and, and thinking about how he did things and structured the deals. And, uh, so yeah, that, that was a fun one. I'm making a prediction right now, Adam. I'm predicting that this could or should be a potential text for case studies at some school where they, you know, offer MBAs. It, 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 do you agree? I mean, I know you're going to agree, but I, I mean, couldn't this be, I mean, th these could be some mini case studies, uh, some of these deals that you've been able to, uh, you know, flush out some of the, man, you've done a lot of research here. Oh, I, I'd, I'd be flattered. And, you know, that would, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, you know, and any, any class, anybody listening out there, you know, I'm happy to come and come and talk to your class. Uh, that, that would be amazing. And, and so, you know, which is sort of a, um, uh, use this opportunity to plug my, my blog, which is the oraclesclassroom.com, which it, it was originally, I said, well, geez, I know I need a website to, to tell this book when it's done. And, you know, it, it went, you know, well, well longer than I originally imagined writing this thing. And, um, and, and so really I, I envisioned it at, at least at the beginning. I said, well, maybe it can be sort of like a Khan Academy of, uh, of Berkshire or, you know, uh, an information, you know, archive repository. And so any information or most of the information that I have on any of these subsidiaries is out there. And so I've, I've laid it out. I, I kind of copied CNBC's timeline. I have a timeline of acquisitions. And, and so, you know, I, I want someone, for example, you know, because I, I had limited space in the book, you know, to say, oh, well, geez, you know, okay, I, I'm interested in, um, you know, Nebraska Furniture Mart didn't have a ton of stuff out there, but I'm interested in Scott Fetzer. Well, okay, that was 1986. And there was these annual reports that were public and I have a little folder drop down and you can, you can go in and, and do your research. And, uh, and we're working on a glossary too. I, I was, I was hoping to have that in the book, but it was just, you know, the book is big enough as it is at, at almost 800 pages. Um, but you know, if a school, for example, wanted to, to use the website and, and use the glossary of terms and, you know, I just, I, I hope I, I've been so lucky in this, uh, in this journey of investing and, and more. And, you know, I, I'm, I feel fortunate to be able to give back. So, you know, every deal that Warren, his small team have put together over the years, 
I may have given you one of them, but what are some of your favorite deals? We're the ones that just stand out and say, this was, this was amazing, or there's something about it, maybe beyond the numbers, that caused you to like it. What, what are some of your favorites? Sure, sure. Now, I thought you were going to ask me some, you know, some specific question about a number, you know, over the 50-year history, and that would be the one that I didn't know. Or <laughs> uh, There's a lot to take in, and, um, you know, it's really you're writing the history of a life, right? I mean, the company is, it's such a, and a huge company at that, you know, and I keep, for some reason, I keep going back to Scott Fetzer, uh, which was, you know, this mini conglomerate that Berkshire bought in 1986. And, you know, I, I keep going back to it, I think for a couple of reasons, you know, it, it was during this period of time that Berkshire, it, it was big enough to really, you know, do some of these bigger deals, but it was small enough that, you know, Scott Fetzer was almost 700 million in revenues. It, it, it nearly doubled Berkshire's uh, revenue base. Um, it was 19%, 19-20% of uh, Berkshire's equity capital at the time of purchase. Um, and, and there's just so many interesting, uh, you know, facets of Scott Fetzer, you know, to begin with, you know, again, that 20 business mini conglomerate that Berkshire just kind of swallows up and, you know, Kirby and World Book were the the, the most well-known of, of that acquisition. Um, but then, it, it, you know, so that was that was a failed LBO uh, attempt. Which they were going to use the the stock, the ESOP plan to buy the company and that failed. And so it ended up in Berkshire, which, you know, how many times did that happen? over time, you know, that these companies just ended up in Berkshire, you know, and it's amazing because Scott Fetzer was earning 34, you know, 30s in, in the 30s uh, uh, return on capital. And it's like, why, why wouldn't somebody else pick this up? I mean, it's just crazy that almost, you know, crazy that they landed at Berkshire. Um, and Berkshire only paid, uh, I think their going in return was about 25% pre-tax. Um, and, and I look at everything pre-tax as if it was, you know, 100% equity financed, which is, uh, which I think how Warren looks at, at deals. And then you have Ralph Shea, who, you know, sort of managed, he, he was almost like a little mini Buffett. And, you know, and, and then you have, you know, this other fact of Scott Fetzer's many businesses were, were very good businesses earning, you know, 100% return on capital in some cases, but they didn't grow. And so it's a great example of, it's okay and actually very good in, in many cases. If you can find these businesses, growth is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, the, the sort of end all. Um, and then, you know, related to that is uh, you you can see over time, literally, so, so you think about Scott Fetzer doubling Berkshire's revenues, 20% of its equity capital, and literally by nine, uh, probably about 2002, 2003, that business fades to a footnote in Berkshire's financial statements, just because you know it it has it's it's an excellent business, but it's just being overshadowed by the compounding effect uh, of of Berkshire's you know retaining all of its earnings and reinvesting in other subsidiaries. And so, uh, to me, it was a, a fun example. And, and Buffett uses this one uh, many times to talk about goodwill and how it was written off, and yet you know. Scott Fetzer's earnings increased and it just, there, there's so many different, and of course the, you know, the old versus new example that he gives uh, in one of his letters uh, about accounting and how, when acquisitions happen. So there, there's so many examples from Scott Fetzer that I, I just tend to, I, I keep going back to that one as, as a fun one. My next question, and I think you know what it is, 
but I'm going to tweak it and you can come back and answer the original question. No one's perfect, right? I mean, Warren, in fact, he'd be the first one to tell you I'm not perfect. Don't put me up on this high pedestal. My original question were, what were some of the deals that you believe where he struck out? I got to thinking, what are some of the deals that he didn't do, which led to a strikeout? And I, I hate to lead the witness, but am I allowed to ask you that question? There may be some deals that did not land in your book, in the timeline. Are there any off the top of your head that you wonder, why didn't he do this? Or why didn't they go down this path? Because in a way, that's a form of a strikeout where uh, him and his shareholders could have won big. Yeah, and it was it was tough, you know, going and writing this book and saying, oh, well, okay. And I even said at the beginning, you know, I'm biased. And um, so it, it's hard. It's, it's almost hard to, to put yourself, you know, we, we can look back and say, well, they should have done this. And they should have done that. Um, um, you know, I don't know. And, and they talk about Google, for example. They should have have seen that. And, and you know, that, that one's, that one's an, an interesting one because... And Apple, um, and it's, you know, Warren's used the example of, well, geez, at Geico, we were paying whatever, I think he said $10 a click or something ridiculous. Um, you know, we should have seen that. So they, they have, in addition to, you know, the, this broad base of businesses, you know, all those businesses have suppliers and customers. And so they have an interesting insight into, you know, these little economic, uh, niches or developments or, or trends. And, you know, they, they missed Google. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could criticize I didn't buy Google, so I certainly can't criticize them for not doing it. Um, and I don't know, I mean, that would almost be an interesting question, uh, to ask Warren is, you know, tell us some of, you know, time has passed, tell us some of these deals in, you know, the seventies or eighties that you passed on that we never knew about because they didn't happen. In the deals that you do have outlined in the book, are there any that stick out where this was not, it, it did not get the return they were expecting? Well, you know, the, the footwear businesses uh, come come to mind, uh, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, that's another example of, you know, Berkshire didn't, its strategy was no strategy. You know, it was this patient opportunism where, uh, you know, they acquire uh, Lowell Shoe, uh, I think H.H. H. Brown was first. Uh, in ninety early nineties ninety ninety one, then it was Lowell Shoe and then Dexter, and so you know those, and, and you can see it uh, in, in in my chapter summaries. You can see you know the footwear earnings just go down even even though these acquisitions occurred. And you know of course Dexter is one of the uh, the most well known failure. He issued uh, twenty five thousand shares. Um, that that was probably his biggest mistake. Uh, but, it, you know, I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe could they have seen the decline happening with H.H. H. Brown and Lowell first? Or, you know, was it uh, was it the manager that attracted him and said, well, geez, you know, I've got this excellent manager, you know, that can can ward off these things. I, I don't know. Um, they certainly stuck with, you know, and again, it's you, you, you think about these things. You know, well, geez, you know, they spent 20 years with uh with the textile business, why didn't they shut it down sooner? But then you realize, you know, some of these time periods, you know, you can, you can breeze through, you know, in, in my book, you know, check off the years reading, you know, 10 pages at a time. And it's like, think about how long that actually was, right? <laughs> Whether it's waiting for certain deals or, you know, insurance pricing or, uh, it, you know, it's a long time and, and they really were patient. I want to be a James Kramer copycat for a minute, do a little bit of a, a lightning round. 
to, to, to set this up, to set this up, we mentioned Hagstrom and I don't feel guilty for reading that book. I think I've read it three times. You read it 10 times. Uh, I like Mary Buffett's book. She has a, a small book uh, about, I think just some of the, I think it's a balance sheet approach to the financial statements. It's a little hardback book. I love it. I really like the book that Pat Dorsey did a number of years ago. Again, the title escapes me and you're nodding your head, but he brings up, he brings up the concepts, moats, uh, durable competitive advantage. Uh, I don't know if he, I think the long term view is more inferred. Uh, so I want to come back to those and let's just talk about moats again. This is a timeline driven book. Uh, you're looking at, some of the due diligence, you may not use that term in the book, but is it very obvious that some of these, these businesses that were purchased had moats around them? Yeah. You, you look at it. And again, Scott Fetzer comes to mind and, and, you know, readers will, will see what I have in the book. I, I don't, you know, it's not 10 pages on Scott Fetzer. It's maybe, you know, a page and a half or, or two pages, uh, you know, for that specific acquisition. Uh, but you can look back and you can see and actually read the annual reports uh, of, of Scott Fetzer and see the numbers. And, um, you know, some of them were, and again, you know, we're biased. How much is it, how much is obvious just because we're looking back in, in hindsight, um, you know, some that come to mind, you, you know, for, for moats, um, they bought Kansas bankers, uh, surety group and, you know, you know, moats again, it's like some of these things are, are counterintuitive. You know, we talked about the growth or lack thereof of Scott Fetzer, well, uh, Kansas Bankers uh, Surety, you know, was this tiny little niche business. And and sometimes, uh, one of my favorite investors, uh, Dorsey's, Dorsey's definitely in, in the top five, but uh, is uh, Bruce Greenwald. And he talks about this, that uh, niches are actually, in many cases, better. You know, a growing market is actually an invitation for more competition, more innovation, more. And so, uh Kansas bankers was this tiny little, you know, niche. The CEO knew every banker by, you know, by name. And, uh, you know, how do you compete with that? And so, uh, you know, those types of things, and you look at the history of many of these, these businesses are so stable. You know, it's not like, again, Scott Fetzer or Feckheimer, which is another one in 1986. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, it was brilliant after the fact. I mean, you, you could see that these businesses were, were really well I did well uh, for owners uh, before Berkshire bought them. It's just, you know, Berkshire was just sort of standing by like they do today and just said, okay, well, if, you know, the LBAOs don't want them or if this deal fell through, uh, you know, we'll take it. <laughs> and usually where you have a moat, you're going to have a durable competitive advantage. And again, is that pretty obviously? Do, I mean, I didn't say that correctly. Do you see the strong competitive advantage that you see in some of these acquisitions uh, over the years? Yeah, another one that comes to mind is, uh, is is Justin Industries, and so you know when I was unpacking that one, uh, Justin Industries is is the boot business, and then they have Acme Brick, and and you look at it, and again this one was was public as well. It, it was these two businesses, and, and on on the whole, it, it looked like a you know pretty good business, and then you start to unpack it, and um, and I looked at the brick business itself, and it's like oh my gosh, like you see again uh, local. Um, local distribution, a brick plant, you know, it's a low value per pound item. So it has this, uh, this uh, naturally uh, limited geography, but you could see that that business was earning, uh, you know, great returns uh, and growing. Um, and, and so he said, okay, well, that was the value in that business. 
And so, you know, maybe that growth over time helped uh, in that in that example, you know, it, it was a single digit going in pre-tax return. Well, you know, that growth, if they can continue that growth, that will offset, that's the margin of safety, right? So I looked at, I looked at that in some cases, but, you know, another, another thing just, just with regard to moats is, you know, it's not, it's, um, you know, Buffett called it a, a movie, not a picture. And so these are, these are ever evolving. And, um, you know, Buffalo News, for example, you know, when they first bought that, didn't do well, their competitor goes out of business, you know, profits spike through the roof. And then, you know, uh, last year they, they sold the business and it, it's a struggling industry. So you, you can, you can see this happen over time. And uh, again, it's, it's, I, I hope, I hope that, that uh, readers get this dual sort of, you know, wow, look at all this detail up close. And then the ability to digest it in, in such a, a relatively short period of time that, oh, hey, I can look at this broad arc of trends and patterns and, you know, concepts, moats, for example. One more, one more uh, bullet point in the lightning round. Accounting profit versus economic profit. What's the big deal? I mean, I do, but what's the big deal between those two? Yeah. Oh boy. I mean, uh, you know, Berkshire, and it's so evident in, in the early days. Uh, and, and he continues to talk. I mean, he's so many times just talks about, you know, again, we talked about Scott Fetzer and how he presented the the old Scott Fetzer versus the new Scott Fetzer when it joined Berkshire. And it was the same company. He just presented two different financial statements. Um, but, you know, look through earnings, this concept of, uh, you know, especially the early days when they were invested in, in heavily in marketable securities. Um, you know, they, they owned, uh, I think I think it was Capital Cities paid them something like uh, it, it was a tiny tiny fraction of the actual earnings that were accruing to Berkshire by virtue of its ownership stake did not show up on Berkshire's financial statements and so you see by the early 1990s he starts to con- bring in in this concept of look through earnings and actually provides shareholders with okay Here's what they are, and I, I repro- reproduce those uh, those tables in the book. Um, so so whether it's the, the dividends from investees, uh, you know, insurance float is another one that uh, I think is so well known, but not as well understood. I think uh, you know it's technically a liability, but the way that Berkshire has structured it, uh, it really function it really functions like equity. Um, and then just I know some of these these other weird things, and and you know I I, I think your listeners are you know uh, you know this is the CFO uh, podcast here. You're gonna you're gonna love the 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 geek out sessions and the footnotes to the book. Um, you know these things like when they buy they buy additional interests in Marmon, and they pay you know the first purchase uh, they paid over the asset, so that amount goes to goodwill. But subsequent purchases. It's a direct write-off to equity, and it's like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. And so, Buffett does such a wonderful job highlighting these for his readers and for shareholders. I try to pull those out, uh, but it really highlights, you know, just what he says all along that accounting is really the language of business, and it's it's so striking how how many times the two diverge from one another. Again, the book is the complete financial history of Berkshire Hathaway. And I like the subtitle, A Chronological Analysis of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's Conglomerate Masterpiece. I love that last piece, Conglomerate Masterpiece. Love it. 
Hey, let's talk about Adam. Let's talk about Adam Mead, the personal, the, the, the business person. What do you do when you're not writing? <laughs> Far less exciting than, than Berkshire. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty busy. So I, I have, I, I left a, a career in banking. I spent 10 years in, in commercial credit, uh, to, to start, uh, go full time at, at Mead Capital. So I have a, a value-based, uh, firm that, that manages separate accounts, uh, you know, using, using Warren, Warren's framework. Um, and then, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of a part-time, you know, as, especially with this book ramping up, uh, I've been more active on social media and YouTube. I have, you know, the Oracle's classroom on YouTube. Uh, so I'm almost a part-time educator here, but, uh, I'm on, I'm on three nonprofit boards as well. So, uh, pretty busy. I don't ask every author this, maybe one in five, one in six. I have to ask you this question. At your local college, local university, what would be your TEDx talk, that eight, nine, uh, 10 minute talk at your local community college? You know, if it wasn't Berkshire, you know, that would be my first, um, you know, I, I, I love, you know, I, I'm, I'm really am a, a Charlie groupie as he calls us um i i love the concept of you know timeless timeless wisdom you know we were talking before about you know farnham street and you know really i think bringing my perspective to mental models timeless wisdom you know this framework for for learning uh i think can't be talked about enough and if if i could have an opportunity to share that with someone else uh you know maybe it would it would do some good and, and help some people. So I think that would be mine. On one of your websites, the one we're talking about, you have, I think, a list of investment books. And I was impressed because I think I've read maybe more than half of the books. So I think we're kind of on the same page. So I'm curious about your favorite books. And I know it's going to be tilted toward investment books, but uh, what are some of your favorite books? And again, investment, but then maybe what are some of your non uh, favorite books that are non-investment related. I lean, I don't want to say he- more heavily towards Charlie, but I, I guess I identify more with Charlie because I feel like I'm, you know, just all over the place with my interests. So, you know, uh, we'll start with the investing ones. I mean, poor Charlie's, you, you can't go wrong with that in terms of thinking through, you know, business. Um, Competition Demystified is Bruce Greenwald's, one of Bruce, Bruce Greenwald's books. Um, his other one, uh, which actually he, he just, I was, I was ecstatic that he came out with an, another edition here. I'm still, still reading it, uh, getting into it. Value investing from Graham and Buffett to beyond Gr- Greenwald is so good about walking through, you know, the true, true sources of competitive advantage and, you know, why companies do well. And I mean, he's, he's really, really a master. So, so those are some on the on the investing side, but you know the non-investing side. I mean, I I'm interested in. I, I just recently finished reading uh, the Hamilton biography by Ron Chernow. Oh, it's so good. Uh, just you know, both both from a finance standpoint, you know, and maybe your listeners can sympathize with this too. Um, you know, I I'm the I'm the spreadsheets guy. You know, happy behind the behind the computer uh, inside. Just taking Hamilton's you know, just approach to like just doing things. And he would just, he just really got so many things done in his, you know, a, a, along the way of, you know, helping form a country, but also, you know, form the, the banking system and all of that. So there's, there's the financial history, uh, you know, American history, all of that 
wrapped up in it. I'll, I'll read a little bit of fiction. Uh, there's this blog uh, that I've been following for a number of years. Uh, this guy, Joshua Cannon, he, uh, he suggested reading Middlemarch by, by George Eliot. Uh, that was, that was, that was a good read. Um, I'm in the midst of reading Foundation, the Foundation series, which I guess was the inspiration uh, of, of Elon Musk uh, back in his, his childhood days. Again, some other ones, we were talking about Farnham Street. Uh, I, w- I was, when I had the, the free time, I was part of the you know, book club that they had, and you'd read along and talk about the chapters, and this, this book, Song of the Dodo, which is about um, Alfred Russell Wallace and you know his the, the lesser known uh, discoverer of, of evolution uh, compared to compared to Darwin. So again, Adam, I really appreciate you for coming on. We're we're going to be hearing your name a lot over the next three, four, or five years. Uh, I, I it's it's going to happen, and, and I'm going to be following you every 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 step of the way. I've already bought your book. Haven't read the manuscript yet, but I can't wait to get my hands on it. And uh, I might even buy a second copy, FedEx it to you, uh, get your signature and uh, get it back. So uh, again, I, I cannot wait for the, the book to, to come out April 13th. If you're listening to this show after April 13th, go get the book. Thank you, Mark. This is a lot of fun. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Again, thank you, Adam Mead. The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. That's the book. It comes out April 13th, 2021. By the way, Adam is active on Twitter and on LinkedIn. If you have some questions about Buffett or Munger, I know he'll answer them. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Until next week. CFOs, VPs of finance, controllers, staff accountants, financial analysts, FP&A professionals, and all other financial leaders. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf.